Welcome to the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast, Season 4. This podcast is for and about people getting ready for their first ever pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, France, and Portugal. With your host, Camino guide and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. Camino de Santiago is an ancient pilgrimage route that has as its terminus the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, believed for many centuries to be home to the relics of the Apostle James. James was a cousin of Jesus of Nazareth, and as the story goes, he was sent to the Iberian Peninsula to spread the gospel after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. There is much more to the story, as I'm sure you can imagine, and you can learn all about it in books, videos, movies, blogs, and even earlier in this podcast series. For now, though, let's fast forward to modern times. What we have today is a pilgrimage destination that hundreds of thousands of pilgrims visit each year, arriving on foot, horseback, bicycle, in wheelchairs, and by bus, train, and flight. This podcast is specifically for pilgrims getting ready to walk one of the Camino routes for the first time. It's about getting you on the trail on your first pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Hi, this is Nancy, podcast host and pilgrimage guide on the Camino Frances route. I love pilgrimage, and I love encouraging and empowering my listeners to take their first steps toward this life-changing experience. I lead two groups of pilgrims each year on the Frances route, one in May and one in September, starting in the pretty French Basque town of Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port. If you are tuning into the podcast for the first time, welcome. If you'd like to learn more about how I help people take their Camino dreams from idea to actually getting started, you can stop by my website, thecaminoexperience.com. There you will find that I still have spots open in my September group, and you can send me a message to let me know you'd like to connect and learn more. If starting or walking the Camino with a group isn't what you imagine when you see yourself on the trail, I also have a couple of self-guided or self-directed options for you that will give you the confidence to get from where you are now to your first steps on the trail. It's all on thecaminoexperience.com. Now let's get to what I have for you in this episode of the podcast. We are going to be talking about the spiritual practice of pilgrimage. I am delighted to have as my guest one of my spiritual teachers, role models, and mentors, Dr. Edward Fulyun. Dr. Edward is the senior minister at my church, the Center for Spiritual Living in Santa Rosa, California. He has been the spiritual leader of our community for more than 30 years, and he is known throughout the community and the larger organization as a masterful teacher, inspiring leader, trusted advisor, and valued friend. I had the pleasure of serving with Dr. Edward on our Center's Board of Trustees from 2019 to 2022, and I have relied on his wise counsel many times. Dr. Edward received a Doctorate of Divinity from Centers for Spiritual Living, and he was awarded the much-respected Ernest Holmes Award for Exemplary Demonstration of the Teachings of Dr. Ernest Holmes. Among his passions as a minister is helping other ministers, and he has served the Ongoing Minister's Education Conference for the past 20 years. He also graduated as a Sonoma County Law Enforcement Chaplain in April 1999. Dr. Edward is the author of several books, including The Power of Meditation, An Ancient Technique to Access Your Inner Power, and Ordinary Goodness, The Surprisingly Effortless Path to Creating a Life of Meaning and Beauty and the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God, retold in simplified English. 
I will be reading a short excerpt from The Power of Meditation at the end of our conversation. Another thing I'll mention about Dr. Edward is that he was the team captain the year I participated in the 545-mile AIDS Life Cycle Bicycle Ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles. You may remember, I used that ride as an example in the episode a few weeks ago about fear and courage. That was episode one of this season, in case you'd like to refer back to it. Dr. Edward also leads groups on pilgrimage to help people explore new cultures and to encourage new ways of understanding the divine. He has led groups to such significant destinations as Greece, Bali, Bhutan, Thailand, Hawaii, and Costa Rica. As a spiritual teacher, he brings a depth and breadth of knowledge and experience to his trips, and he will be sharing some of his insights with us today. While he has not yet walked the Camino de Santiago, I think you will find his perspective to be applicable to the universal experience of pilgrimage as it presents itself in various religious traditions. I'll also mention all of Dr. Edwards' books are available on Amazon, and you can check out his inspiring Sunday messages on our center's website, which is cslsr.org. And I do have those links in the show notes. Now, let me share with you some of the questions we'll be exploring in this episode. What calls us to go on a pilgrimage? What happens on pilgrimage, really? Why is the pilgrimage experience the same yet different for everyone? How do you prepare your heart and spirit for pilgrimage? And how do you talk about pilgrimage when you return home? That's what's on tap for you in this episode. Shall we meet Edward? Edward, hi. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hello. Thank you for having me, Nancy. This is exciting for me because I have had a couple members of clergy on the podcast in the past, but what is notably different about having you here versus having them here is that you have a vast amount of experience with pilgrimage, but none specifically on the Camino de Santiago. And those other two clergy that I had on the show have walked the Camino and so had a very particular perspective and slant to their answers. So I am really excited to hear a non-Camino take on pilgrimage. Wonderful. Yes. I have not been on the Camino and I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of pilgrimage. And so I have, as you said, experience within my own spiritual community of doing pilgrimages in other areas of the world. Let's jump right in on that. Would you share with us a little bit, whatever you'd like to share about your pilgrimage experience? Yes, I think the, the, the awareness was born in me of the difference between going on a vacation compared to going on a pilgrimage. There's a vast difference. And I took a group of um, 50 Americans, I believe, to Greece right when September 11th happened. And I had done some research the year before and, uh, with a company that was going to take me to tour. And with, that was our intention to go on a tour. And our expectation was to see cultural things. And then when I arrived in Greece with the 50 Americans, there was no infrastructure. The tour company uh, didn't provide a guide. And I found myself propelled into this role of leading uh, tourists around. And then September 11th happened. And I remember exactly where we were, we were on Padmas, and, and um, all of the TVs were showing the destruction happening, and so it shifted everything. Now this group of Americans became stranded in Greece, and I was catapulted into taking care of logistics and taking care of people, and at one point, a member on the tour said, you know, I think that we should sit down and meet as a group in a circle and support each other and do some kind of spiritual practice or at mm. least meditate. And I went, oh, yes, that's what we ought to do. And then that practice of sitting together became the glue that helped us uh, get through the difficult task of going home. And I never forgot that pivot. And so the by the next time I started planning to go somewhere, I had shifted my entire intention to the spiritual aspect 
of being together and every trip I did since then had the focus be on the spiritual practice as a group as we went together. And so I very quickly learned that getting clear on what my expectation is for the trip and my intention changes everything, sets the tone. And people have different expectations and intentions. Perhaps they want to have an experience that deepens their understanding of their lives or they want to broaden their mindset or they want to get a particular... Then maybe they have a question in their heart about something that's weighing heavily on them and they see the pilgrimage as an opportunity to get that addressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's how I began to Greece. So that was just over 20 years ago. What an interesting introduction to leading pilgrimage, not just being on one yourself, but getting dropped into being a leader on a pilgrimage. Yeah. It was an amazing um, trial by fire, Mm -hmm. right? And um, what it did for me is really introduce me to the resilience and the connection to the local people, how important that is. Uh, Because at that time, we were stuck in Athens and um, the Greek people in Athens would just come up to us. They couldn't speak English. They would just hold their hearts and say, I'm sorry. And they would bring their tables out onto the street and cook dinner for lunch and dinner for us. And we had these tremendous experiences of connection that transcended the ability to speak the language. And that became so much more important than seeing the Parthenon mm. or you know, doing the checklist. Oh, well, I saw that. I saw this. I saw that. So when I designed pilgrimages later, we didn't have an uh, itinerary that was heavily loaded with sightseeing. Mm-hmm. It was heavily loaded with introspection, connecting with the local culture, really learning what is appropriate and respectful in the spiritual tradition of the places we were going to. So there began this idea of moving away from tourism to uh, this deep transformative experience. And it's been, uh, it's been lovely to do that, to really learn about what can happen on a journey together where there is a strong group mutual support and where there's a daily spiritual practice. You know, not tagged at the end of the day as, you know, a mandatory meeting. Mm-hmm. No, but it's really the, the lifeblood of the journey together Because what happens on pilgrimages, and I'm sure you must know that, people can have cathartic experiences, they can have meltdowns, they can feel all sorts of feelings, perhaps some that they didn't expect to feel on the journey. And so to have um, support systems and to share tools that we can use to support each other and ourselves on the journey become very important. Mm. Is it something about the nature of pilgrimage that brings out all those things, all that introspection, all that the potential meltdowns, the transformation? Yes, a whole range of things. We're suspending the ordinary agenda of our day-to-day activities. We're going into an environment that we can't uh, easily predict what happens next. Mm. We are leaving behind our uh, comfort systems, what we know and what we can count on. And all of these things added together with the fact that seven days, 10 days, whatever amount of days, it puts us into a contemplative or self-reflective state that is amplified in comparison to what we're doing at home, where we may have multiple distractions, multiple duties, work, children, hobbies, etc., going to the gym. Now, when you're on a pilgrimage, it's like somebody turns the dial and the lens is focused on this transformative experience. So it's not the sort of thing you can even, and this is not meant to frighten anybody. You can't really prepare for it completely Mm -hmm. because there's an element of the unknown that rises up to meet you. And I I do believe that it meets us at the point of our need. And, and I think what's going on inside of us at the beginning of the journey 
matches the type of transformative experience that comes to us because it's different for different people. Mm. Mm. Will you say more about that? Some people um, go specifically because they've got a heaviness in their heart and something to leave behind. Other people perhaps just want to, like I said, broaden their perspective on life. And so I think the journey meets that need. Mm. And if there's something to be let go of, I think those things that are preventing the letting go come into focus. If somebody wants to broaden their perspective on life or have a deeper understanding of other cultures, then whatever is standing in the way of that broadening comes into focus. At least that's what it looks like to me. That's what I've observed on the journey. So what you're saying then is take a group of 10, 15, 20, 50 people, put them on the same pilgrimage trip, and there will be that many different experiences going on. Yes, exactly. And we don't know at what point on the pilgrimage their cathartic experience or their (laughs) realization will happen. For some people, it's the day they land, like they might land and set foot on the earth in India and suddenly have the, let's call it the energetic feeling of being where they're supposed to be in the world and their mind and their hearts open. It could Mm -hmm. be right there. And some people, it could be walking through a market in Bali or Costa Rica where suddenly it all comes together. So Having a structure on the pilgrimage, a group is a wonderful structure to have on the pilgrimage, can, can help us have our experiences at the different times. Now, the Camino, um, you know, you might be doing it as a group or alone, so it's a different way of doing it. But still, a person, even on their own, can take with them something. I, I like to call it a, like a traveling altar. Mm. I suggest before we go on a trip that people create a traveling altar which can be as small as an icon from their faith tradition or a photograph of loved ones that helps connect them, reconnect them to their heart or an object. Perhaps it's a heart-shaped stone that they picked up in the Grand Canyon, or maybe it's a candle or prayer beads. And then they can place that in a prominent place when it's rest time. And it has, has a powerful way of reconnecting us both to the intention of the pilgrimage and also to what's alive and vibrant in our hearts. I love that. I love that. I don't know if you're familiar with the tradition of the Iron Cross on the Camino. No, tell me about that. It's a it's a it's been around for centuries. It's a old Roman symbol, I believe, and I'm going to have to check my history. Usually I have my friend Bibi Barami nearby to answer these questions, but it's a point on the Camino where people have been traveling past and through for hundreds of years. And the tradition is to bring a rock or something significant from home that represents the burdens that you carry. And when you get to the stage with the cross, you mindfully approach it and mindfully set down those burdens in the form of putting the rock at the base. Now, that's a little different than an altar item or something significant that you would carry, but there seem to be some similarities between those two. Absolutely. I love that idea. You're reminding me of how important ritual is to us and how we can act out our um, releasing or opening up or whatever it is through symbolic practices. And that becomes specifically important for people who may not be able to, say, for example, walk the entire Camino or who might just be doing an abbreviated version of it, they can still have the full experience of transformation by acting out some part, like you said, placing down their burdens. Or, um, you know, there are the, there are these traditions, for example, in India, where perhaps an individual cannot make it to all of the important, significant temples in their lifetime. In um Varanasi, they have an abbreviated version where there are symbolic stations where people can travel to to act out the entire pilgrimage, but in one afternoon and still have the cathartic experience. So I, I love the idea of doing whatever it is we can to tap into the change or the insight that we want to have. There is also, you know, if you can't take a, a photograph, you might be taking something in your heart on the trip. 
and this is an ancient practice. I think people in ancient times, not the whole family, not the whole village could go on a pilgrimage. So one person went and they took the intentions and maybe the hopes and the aspirations or the questions of the whole family or the whole group. We do a certain similar thing when we go on. I, I do, um, you know, and you know from doing the AIDS life cycle, the 545 mile ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles to raise funds for people that are living with or HIV and for education and services. Sometimes when we go on that pilgrimage, was it certainly is a pilgrimage. Yes, it is. Yeah, we will take the names mm -hmm. of people who have passed on as a result of HIV and AIDS. And when I ask people, may I take your, your loved one's names with me? Um, the, the feeling that people have, it's as if they were going on the trip themselves. And oftentimes they will give me, I'll take, I'll have 50 names or a hundred names wow. and I'll type them all up. And then like every rest stop, say, for example, or at least one rest stop every day on the trip, I'll take that list of names out and look at it to reconnect me to the idea that I'm carrying not only my own aspiration, but the hopes and the dreams and the love of other people who can't make that journey. So we can do that on the Camino, we can mm -hmm. take other people with us in our spiritual, mental, emotional pocket, however we want to represent that. Or even if we're going, say, for example, or take people to um, Thailand and uh, we go there with the specific intention to experience the religious tradition or the spiritual tradition, is a better way of saying it, of the Thai Buddhism. And when we get to Doi Sutep, the beautiful temple on the top of the hill and we preambulate around the stupa, we are taking other people's hearts with us. So that's available too on any kind of pilgrimage. So it's not restricted to me and my experience alone. It can be, there's nothing wrong with that. But I can also expand that and take other people with me on behalf of them. You know, you hit on something that is so common for people walking the Camino people walking to heal from very deep losses. Maybe someone has lost yeah. their spouse of 50 years or a child, uh, an adult child, a child child, uh, wow. someone who has lost family members to cancer or car accidents or addiction, and they take them with them. And it's sort of a duo thing to honor their lives, but also for the person to heal from the loss. Right. Yeah. And I know for myself, after my father passed, I first thing I did was go walk, walk on the Camino and take the grief and the loss, but also to honor him because my dad was such an avid traveler. And darn it, if he had known about this thing, he would have been out there doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that feeling of loss is such a beautiful experience and sometimes i see people are longing for the resolution and and the way of healing loss is that it has its own timeline and it ha and i think that that healing process is supported by such a thing as a camino or mm -hmm. a pilgrimage and i do recall once taking a group to Bali, and we were uh, going to a very, an iconic temple that's very, very popular among tourists. And so it has that element of being very busy tourist mm -hmm. style and almost degrading the spiritual experience. And I said to the group, don't let that happen. Stay in the, the intention that you have to go to a, a, a place that is considered sacred and think about your intention to in this case, release uh, some of the grief that was going on. And I remember as I was leading the group away from the temple, we were walking through knee-deep water at the time. And one member of the group, I couldn't find him. And I got a little panicky and turned around and I saw him standing knee-deep in the water in the traditional dress that we put on out of respect for the local tradition. And he was just standing, staring up at the temple with tears streaming down his eyes. And that was the moment that his heart opened up. And who would have thought that would be the moment, right? Yeah. Because for me, it was like being careful, don't slip on the rocks. I was all in logistics. And so 
might he have been but the right combination of nature and noise and sounds and whatever it is came together and that's when his heart broke open so i say that to alert people to um, not have too tight a grasp on when whatever should happen or whether it should be in a quiet spot or in a busy spot or highly travel tourist spot or a very quiet nature spot or when i'm very tired or when i'm very rested so we can let go of all of those prescriptions and say i'm going on this uh, pilgrimage and i am open to it meeting my my need at the right time in the right place and i find that to be a beneficial approach absolutely you know w- when you're talking about that i'm thinking about the route that i lead groups on I help people get started on the Camino Frances route, which starts inside France, goes over the Pyrenees. And then we've got another 750 kilometers to go. So just under 500 miles. That's a lot of time and distance for transformation to take place. And there's this one spot at the end, the, the final 100 kilometers into Santiago, which is the minimum requirement to receive the Compostela from the church. And so people who don't have time or the physical ability or just don't have the desire to walk farther than that will just walk the final 100 kilometers. So you can imagine the tone changes. You've got these people who have been walking for 700 kilometers and they are trail weary and heart strong and spirit soaring. And they get to the final 100 kilometers and it's a circus. (laughs) They feel like Disneyland. But what you just described, it reminds me that that isn't the issue. That That isn't meant to be or doesn't need to be a barrier to transformation or a barrier to getting what any one person came for. That is so well said. And, you know, I think about it like I can make it a barrier if I want to. Yeah. But I'm going to face that barrier anyway. Exactly. Like re-entry into life. I mean, the first time, like if you're flying back to the United States and let's say you're landing in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York, the immensity of the noise and energy is going to be different from your experience. So it's, you know, I can prepare myself to not let that act like a barrier. And I might even remind myself to hold it lightly and let life be what it is, because otherwise it can act as an irritant. Oh, yes, it can. And it does for many people. And so with my pilgrims, I suggest to them to think about that final 100 kilometers as a transition period in time and distance, and to begin to prepare yourself for that change a couple days before you get there, and then have your eyes open and your heart open for what is there, not not what, what you think should be there, but what is there. Who are the people who need to hear what you have to say? Because by now you have taken in so much of this pilgrimage experience. They're great gifts to be given. Exactly. That's exactly the word I had in mind. This dude, I can think of that last hundred as a blessing, really, a gift, as you say, because I might be able to ask myself, well, how have I how am I new? Because mm-hmm. irritants in life will always present themselves and how am I responding to them in a new way as a result of being on this pilgrimage? And I think that's a really worthy question. I love that. Wow. All right. So let's see. I'm going to want to talk about preparation, getting prepared to go and how do we re-enter? I love that you brought that up. But before we get there, I want to back up even more and go back to the call to pilgrimage. What is it that gets us to the point where, you know what, I need this thing. I need to get away. I need a pilgrimage. What are your thoughts on that? I'll share some common ways because there, of course, there are as many ways as there are human beings. But for some people, it might be a result of having a question in their heart or healing that they want to take place or an insight. And none of the normal structures that they usually use are satisfying that Mm. need to that answer. So they may very well have a a spiritual practice and they may have a a strong community. They they may have all of these things in place. They may be taking their vitamins, going to the gym, (laughs) whatever it is they're doing is not going 
deep enough into their question in their heart. And so those normal strategies and structures, as good as they are, are leaving them still with a hunger in their heart. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is what propels a person to say, I'm going to, I want to go, I want to go. I want to go get the answer. I want to go on the experience and they might go to the Camino or they might choose a spiritual tour or whatever it is they choose. They go on a journey to take them out of the normal structures and put them into an environment that will hopefully break open their heart and mind. That's one thing. There is another thing that happens, and I think it's worth mentioning, is Sometimes the goal or the intention people have in their mind is not what actually happens in the end and something else entirely presents themselves. And an awakening (laughs) happens that they weren't expecting. I'm so glad you mentioned that. (laughs) Yeah, let's, I want to hear what you have to say about that because that is the norm. (laughs) Yes, yes. And, And sometimes the way that is served up to us is through observing the experience of the people, other pilgrims on the journey. And I think of it like as a a resonance on the journey. And we can't really, because we are communal beings, I think we are empathetic whether we know it or not, you know. And let's say there is a vibration of being a pilgrim on a transformative journey. And there you are on the path that it's happening. You can't escape from it. And so I think it works its way into us. And uh, we feel it. And especially if people are going through deep transformations or their sadness is being expressed or released or opened up, it's very difficult to be in that environment and not be touched by it. So Mm. a person might even discover on a pilgrimage that they are releasing a tremendous amount of sadness that they were not aware that they had. Ah, I know that one. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know that one. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think what happens on the Camino, we slow down to the pace of walking and things can catch up with us then. Our hearts, our minds, yeah. our spirits, we can connect to that in a deeper way. And and I think when, when and because we all have different speeds, our normal speed is different for every person. Some people's minds are, fast, some people are slow, some people are introverts, some people are extroverts, et cetera, et cetera, and some are in the right in the middle. All of us can still learn to slow down. Mm. And then that becomes a tool that learned on the pilgrimage, I can now bring into play at home when I'm reintegrating. Now, for some people, slow down looks one way and it looks a different way for the other another person so there's no one size fits all there is a feeling tone to it the slow down speed that uh, once we touch it we know it and then it becomes reproducible and you know it might be like on a walk it might be in nature that you touch that or it might be sitting absolutely still wherever it is when you get home and life is happening again the Just like the walking experience of the pilgrimage infiltrates us Mm -hmm. and gives us our catharsis, so does the fast pace of being at home in our normal circumstance have the opportunity to infiltrate us. So we want to have, um, we want to track the memory of that slow down space and reproduce it so that the pilgrimage doesn't end on day X. Right. And it doesn't end at location X on the map, Mm -hmm. but the pilgrimage then becomes a way of life, a journey on, Mm -hmm. and I extend the experience into my ordinary life. Perfect. Many people say that the Camino begins when you reach Santiago de Compostela. That's when it begins. That's right. I can understand that. For some, that's the destination. One author who I've read, Alexander Shea, says that's the turnaround point. That's when you right. turn around and go, go to what's next. And in the medieval tradition, when we didn't have trains, planes, and automobiles, people in Europe would walk out their front door. They would walk to Santiago, and then they'd have to turn around and walk back. So seriously, it begins when you turn around. Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful metaphor. I never thought of that. Yeah, you had to get home. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't have Ryanair and EasyJet. 
Right, all the choices that we have now. <laughs> I, I also think that um, every journey I've been on, uh, incrementally, I could say uh, that I've been changed. Mm. And I think that that's now I'm, I have more of an adventurous, open attitude to going on a journey. I often go with the question, I wonder what wants to be known in me. Mm. Mm. I wonder what's going to present itself. I'm open to that. So um, I, I put, I'm, I'm holding my intentions and expectations even a little more lightly. I don't mind going with an intention, but I've been surprised so many times on the journey that I, I, I feel I'm more interested in the surprise than I am mm. in what I think I need. Mm. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about how to prepare for your departure onto a pilgrimage. You've made the decision, you've booked some flights, you've got your plans laid out. What practices or preparations can a, can a first-time pilgrim make before they head over to the Camino as an example, but any pilgrimage? Well, I'm thinking about, again, the AIDS life cycle, how a first-time rider will prepare by months in advance, up to six or eight months in advance, starting slowly mm. and then incrementally increasing it so that they develop their capacity to ride. Now, I think that's a very good bit of advice for something physical. Uh, maybe a pilgrim walks a little bit more, but there's the internal part of it as well. I think that going from, a let's say, a busy professional life, or maybe you're a teacher or a nurse or something that is highly active, both physically and mentally, to suddenly be dropped into a massive amount of introspection mm. can be disorienting. So I would say starting however months in advance, carving out time to be with myself. And um, you know, for some people who haven't spent a lot of time in introspection, five minutes can seem like a very long time. Mm -hmm. But it's a really good place to start. So I advise people to sit and give themselves no instructions or have no expectation other than to put a timer on and to sit still for five minutes and see what's that, what is that like, mm. what comes to my awareness. And then maybe if you're inclined to write notes like in a journal, that's good. I've also noticed that for some people, sitting still is not the best way for them to prepare solitude practices. It's better for them to go to a walk around the park. Mm -hmm. uh, the lake in the park. So whatever it is you can do that um, interrupts your normal activities and grants to you a mini experience of what it, in your imagination, what it might be like on a pilgrimage to do that and then to increase that gently so that you already have a relationship with solitude so that you don't drop yourself into it. Having said that, we know, again, there's no one size fits all. Some people don't have the ability or the time or the schedule that will allow them the luxury of preparing that way. And they do literally find themselves dropped into mm -hmm. the pilgrimage. And so I would say that works too, you know. <laughs> there, if, you are, if you are a perfectionist like I am, then I, I over-prepare everything. And that's when I get mm -hmm. surprised by life. So I'm learning to let everything be just the way that it is and just the way that it is not. And if you can prepare, do it. And if that, if you cannot, still go. Yeah. And that, that brings us right to the moment of when you arrive at your starting point and you, you hit that moment of what was I thinking? Yeah. This is, this is not, this was not my best idea ever. And there's that panic moment where you, people start to get the gravity and the enormity of what they have taken on. What would you say to someone at their starting point, they're about to take the first steps of whatever pilgrimage they're doing? Well, this is part of the brilliance of a pilgrimage in another country far away. You've arrived there. You really, it's, it's quite an effort of will to not go mm -hmm. on it. And I love that. So if I suddenly realize something, what have I done? What was I thinking? I pretty much, if I turn back or go forward, I'm pretty much in like at the decision point there. So why not go forward? Yeah. 
I also suggest to people that if that voice emerges, like, what the heck have I done? Instead of running with that voice in a panic mode, I try to take a breath and invite it to talk to me mm-hmm. as if I were talking to a person that I love or a, a younger version of me inside my own head and say, tell me exactly what's going on. And I have that conversation because typically that voice of panic or fear has got a good intention. Mm. It wants uh, probably to protect me. It wants to avoid pain. It maybe is the perfectionist part of me. And typically those voices that appear like that, they need to be granted the space to express themselves. Otherwise they get louder. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't work for me to just shut that down and muscle through it. I know one another part of me may know I have to go anyway, or mm. that I am going to go. But just having the compassion to turn to that part and say, tell me more. I'd like to know more about what it is. Now, the response of that voice is not uniform, the same for everybody. But typically for me, if I take the time to listen to what's going on inside of the voices in my head, they mm-hmm. soften back and they um, they feel heard, you know. Mm. Mm. You know, that's a really big component of it. And I, and it's one of the reasons why I love leading groups is because then there are other people who you've already met via Zoom before we get there. Yes. You kind of already know them. And it's a little bit easier to be honest about how you're feeling. And so I encourage people to talk about that to other pilgrims. Like, just yeah. let's call it out. And then what you get is everyone else going, oh, my gosh, you too? I feel the same way or similar. Yeah. And then we're heard and seen and, oh, okay, now we can go. Yeah, to talk to other people is so powerful. And I think it goes hand in hand with giving other people their space. Mm -hmm. Because you may find that you can't form your sentences or your ideas clearly and you might just need a moment. And so if you're at that place on a probably where you've got all your feelings, you don't know where it's going, I would say don't panic. It's going to come clear to you. And then that, when it does, talk to somebody is a very powerful way of processing what's going on. Yeah. And I think sometimes two people want to be asked, how are you doing? Really? You know, and actually go past yes. the, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm great. I'm really excited. No, really. How are you feeling? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's one of my favorite roles as the, the leader of the group or the guide is to be able to let people know they have that freedom to really say how you're feeling and to witness that, to bear witness to the emotions and the turmoil and the stress and the anxiety and the sense of victory that comes with completing a pilgrimage. Well, you know, I remember reading that emotional maturity is the ability to identify and accurately name feelings. Things. Mm. And sometimes that takes a little bit of reflection because I may know that it sort of feels a certain way, but I don't know what it is quite yet. Mm-hmm. And then I have learned that my inclination is to wait until I can accurately name and explain oh. what's going on inside. And I so I delay talking to anybody mm. and because I want to come, I want the words to come out perfectly. <laughs> now I've learned <laughs> to give myself permission to get it wrong, mm. to say it wrong, and to let the process of stumbling through my words, describing my feelings, be as messy as it needs to be. And that has been a ter- terrific shift in my awareness. Just, just open your mouth. Let it come out and let it be wrong if it is. Because <laughs> yeah. you're on your way to clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it you're going to walk it out and walk through it and it's all gonna it's all gonna come out. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of things you've touched on that I'd like to circle back to. You talked about on that trip to Greece, how the local people came out and provided food and cared for you. Hospitality seems to be a very important component of pilgrimage. I wonder if you could talk a bit about your experience with local hospitality and how that plays into a pilgrimage. Yes, hospitality is such a beautiful part of being a human being. And I think it sometimes gets lost Mm -hmm. 
in the high tourist places where it's an industry of tourism. And my best experiences are off the beaten track, mm -hmm. away from the curated tour and the well-traveled, go see this and go see that. And I think that hospitality is becomes more available when I take the first step of understanding I am a guest hmm. in this country and in this community and the, that the people and the nation and the community is not there to serve me. I'm a visitor. And then when I approach wherever it is that I'm going with respect and awe and humility and interest in learning what is there rather than bringing what is in me, then I open the pathway for hospitality to really be meaningful and reach back. Because I'm, I'm sure if you've been to uh, any highly traveled tourist areas, you can see that sometimes tourists of whatever nation they come from sometimes come with a, a sense of ownership for the place that they're in, maybe some privilege. And so I encourage my people that travel with me to come with a beginner's mind and come as a guest and with tremendous respect. And always the local people notice that. Yeah, They notice the respect and then comes the connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my top tips for, for pilgrims is at the very minimum, learn how they say good morning and start with that. Yes. Always, always start with that. And there's, there's such a difference in experience when you start an interaction with hola, buenos dias, than when you start it with Café con leche. Correct. Just yeah. such a tiny little thing. And it opens up a door to see who is in front of you. Who's the human? Who's the person? Who's the being? And the great thing about being on the Camino and interacting with the people who serve the pilgrims, they know what we're doing. They know we're on a pilgrimage and they know the significance of that, even if we don't yet know it. And so it, it's really very special to connect with them. I think you, you're talking about something very important, making an effort to understand and learn something about the place that you're going to. I know it's very important greeting somebody in France, for example, if you walk into a, a store or even into a party or even to a meeting, it's mandatory to say good morning, uh -huh. or good day, bonjour. Yeah whether you know people, you don't know people. And I, it, there's something elegantly beautiful about that. I, that's on me to say hello when I walk mm -hmm. in somewhere. And I think that learning to say it in the language of the place you're going to becomes very important and communicates care. Yeah. And it's so simple. So simple. Yeah. So, we haven't talked much about the many places that you have traveled to and the different pilgrimages. I, I know of many because I've heard you speak about them on Sunday mornings in your Sunday morning messages. But one of the things that, one of the questions that always comes up for me is what is the importance here? Is it the destination, the sacred center to which we're going, or is it the journey? For you, how do those two interplay? I think that each place that we go to has a history and a culture and you can say an energy that is unique, that uh, draws upon the history and the lives of the people there. So when we go to these different destinations, we can expect a different experience, a different flavor of the journey to, to meet us there. For example, um, you know, in Ireland, uh, there is a pilgrim's way as well. There's a tradition of walking there as well. And all along the way in Ireland, you're going to encounter this beautiful blend of the, uh, well, it depends which part of Ireland, like, for example, the Catholic tradition blended with the, the tradition of holy wells of, let's say, the original people of Ireland, where people still make pilgrimages no matter what their faith tradition, they go and they tie knots at these wells uh, in reverence for Bridget. So there's a whole mm. mythology there. And or, let me say not a mythology, a cultural, spiritual tradition over there that's very important. 
and it feel that's a complete feeling on its own the the mystery of the holy wells of Ireland mm. and how it's integrated into modern life now i'm thinking about this idea of people of different faiths coming to the same pilgrimage location i'm sure you see that on the camino you don't yeah. have to be catholic mm-hmm. to be on that you yeah. can be of any faith tradition and that is the case also in what is the name uh, in that's now modern day turkey it used to be at, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, the marble, um, marble city where John, Saint John the Divine, last days he was ban- banished to Padmas, I think Padmas. But the idea was that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived up the hill around the corner there, and you can still go there. It's like a pilgrimage where there is mass being said continually by volunteer priests. And so they are scheduled regardless of what language they speak. So the mass could be in Portuguese for the first half and then in Spanish or Chinese, who knows? And you see people coming in, piling into these t- this tiny little room, wearing hijabs or wearing whatever spiritual, traditional, national costumes. They're coming for the experience, no matter what religion they come from. And after they sit for a while and pray, they walk out and they tie little uh, bows on a fence to represent their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations or their prayers. And that is a, a unique and complete energetic experience on its own. Now, that's different, again, from Assisi, where we go there and we see this is the place where St. Francis was influenced by Claire, who, you know, influenced him so much and you you can go to the field where that happened where he had his um, ecstatic experiences with nature and the divine and that feels completely different too you're going to go to the cathedral that's dedicated to him where his last resting place was and that's so sumptuous and richly decorated and it has a whole different experience too so every one of these places Bhutan, for example, you know, just the journey getting there and the altitude being so high. So every one of these places is unique. And here's what is important, why I'm saying this. If I come with a preset mind about what I want to have and what I want to do, I might miss what's there. Uh. So if I arrive there and I can let myself be open to what's there, I can even talk to myself like I'm talking to another person, say, be open, or I invite you to be open, or welcome the experience, whatever language works. Self-talk is so valuable and important. I can talk to myself, and then I just move into it with uh, more openness, and then what is there in the energy and the feeling and the culture has a better chance of coming to me. I've been on trips with people that have taken a good part of four or five days to put down their expectations. I mean, they might be hooked on I need coffee with my morning, or I need milk, or I need half and half, and they're in Bali, for example. Yeah. You know, and that, that, that can really trip them up, or the, whatever it is that is interfering with their creature comfort, or the traditions from home, or what they've come to expect, or their difficulty with the lay, you name it. And it can become such an obstacle that it takes them four to five to six days before they become available to what's there. So I I say to people, this place you're going to, tell yourself it's magical before you (laughs) even go. Tell yourself it's deeply spiritually significant before you even go. Tell yourself there is something there for you and you don't yet know what it is. And try to go with that mindset because you know that this intentional work is so important too. Your intention is different from goals. If I go with a goal to have a good time, to see X amount of things, then I can check those things off. But an intention is like a vision. Mm -hmm. It's almost unattainable. It has space to surprise and be different. What you just described is why I'm so grateful that the route that I work on is 500 miles long, because sometimes it takes me that long to get to it, to get to what I came for. And People ask me all the time, you've already done it. Why do you keep going back? It's because that journey, that process has not ended yet. Yeah. I haven't reached the finish line. I love that. Yeah. 
So what I want to wrap up with, Edward, is your thoughts on how do we talk about our pilgrimage once we get home? Because you've already touched on the reentry and what that individual process is and trying to slow down, trying to transition, trying to get through the big airport to get back to our daily lives. But we get home and people are like, so how was it? How was it? What'd you do? What'd you learn? What'd you ah, tell me everything? How do we talk about pilgrimage when we get home to people who didn't go with us? Okay, with great care, I suggest that you might want to carve out some time to not talk about it right away, to um, nurture it and let it, you know, it's like when you open a good bottle of wine, you don't drink it right away, you let it settle for a moment. And when the bread comes out of the oven, you, it's got to rest before you dive in. Well, in my case, I eat it right away. But you know what I mean? The idea is there's this moment between the pilgrimage and life that's a very rich moment, an incubation or mm. settling. And it reminds me of that phrase in the Bible about praying in secret. It's, it's not to be secretive. Mm-hmm. It's to nurture and hold the, the holiness of what's happened for you and to hold it in a place that it doesn't become adulterated with commonality like because mm-hmm. there there's this lovely <laughs> good naturedness that we have with each other we're like hey how was that for you but it's sort of more of a social convention than mm-hmm. it is really a deep connection so i would say i might even prepare myself with some elevator talking point hmm. what does that mean well, you know, that's the elevator is like when you get in the elevator and somebody says, what do you do for a living? Or what does your spiritual tradition believe? So you need five points that you can share easily with them because the elevator journey is very short. Yes. So I would, I would prepare myself with a few things to say it was very difficult or I had a good time or uh, whatever it is. <laughs> and I wouldn't like to dive into the deep transformational experience because I'm not ready yet. Mm-hmm. I remember my grandmother I would say, how are you? And she would say, I'm fine, thank you. And I'd say, oh, grandma, you're not fine. Why, how are you really? <laughs> and she would look at me and say, you know, Edward, it's a social convention. Mm. And the correct answer is I'm fine. And everybody knows there's more to it than that. And I learned such a lot from that. And I thought, ah, oh, I can be at peace with people giving me, that's the first It's the first surface level of social connection. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. It's quite lovely and connecting. But the gem in my heart from the experience of the pilgrimage, it might take me a moment to understand it, to articulate it, to communicate it. And it's okay if I'm not ready right away to do that. Yeah, I love that. That's just golden to give that permission that you don't have to go give a book report the moment you get to class. And you don't have to tell everybody, everything. You actually can choose who you tell what to. Correct. Yeah. Really, really important. Yeah. Edward, anything else you'd like to add to the conversation? Oh, no. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now I'm all excited and stimulated (laughs) to get out into the world and travel and and discover and experience again. Oh, good, good. Before we wrap up, I want to mention this book that I picked up that it was actually written by you, The Power of Meditation. And I was, wow. I was thumbing through my copy today in preparation to talk with you as I wanted to see what gems I could find to share with people as I highly recommend this book. But there was something that I found, let's see here, that it just reminded me of pilgrimage. And you're, you're referring to meditation and you say, what method you use to get there seems less important than that you go on the journey. To think that there is only one way to meditate, I'll fill in one way to go on pilgrimage, is not accurate. And it isn't all mental. It is an integration of thoughts, feeling, sensation, body, mind, and movement. And for me, that just bridged that right, right there. Meditation, pilgrimage, interchangeable, but very different and unique and special practices. Yes, and that's so important. It, it links back to there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. 
And you can, I shouldn't and ought not to compare my experience on a pilgrimage with what other people are going through. Perfect. And that's such a love. I'm, I, that's, I'm so glad you read that. You reminded me of that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is really, really stuck out when I looked at that. So I want to make sure I mention the power of meditation. That is available Amazon, I would imagine. Where, where should someone yes. go to pick up their copy of The Power of Meditation? Yeah, primarily on Amazon at the moment. That's a good place to go. Okay, very good. And I know I mentioned in the introduction at the beginning of this episode, your other books that are out there. I'm, I'm obviously a fan. <laughs> You've been a tremendous teacher to me and a role model and an unwitting mentor in many, many cases. So it is, uh, it's just been a pleasure for me to have you on the show. Thanks, Edward. And likewise, thank you so much, Nancy. All right. Bye-bye.